All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> um, I noticed something in the way that the order of worship has gone up to this point, and don't know that it was on purpose, by, at least from the human perspective, but there's been a lot of focus this morning on the kingship of Christ. Um, a lot of the songs we sung, the uh, Old Testament scripture we read, and um, I even just sat there thinking, I didn't do this on purpose, but I even just sat there thinking, wow, what a context to pray for the persecuted church, that David's greater son has come and the throne has been given to him and he sits on that throne. Um, I just wanted to point that out. I just sat there amazed by that for a little bit. Uh, you will recall uh, in the section of chapter 1 that we covered last week, Paul says the report of the Ephesian church's faith in Christ and their love for all the saints had come back to him. And in response, Paul declared his thankfulness for these brothers and sisters and prayed for their advancement in the faith he knew they already possessed, that they might know the hope to which they had been called. Then he went off into a related sidebar that I just went off into my own sidebar on about the preeminence and all-encompassing authority of Christ. Paul returns to his original subject, the faith of the Ephesian church, in the passage we're considering today. Recall there were no chapter breaks in the original epistle. So where we see chapter 2, the Ephesian church didn't see that. Okay, um, Those were added later. And they are generally helpful. And I even believe that this was a good place for them to put the chapter break when they were doing this. But we need to be careful that just because there is a chapter break, we don't make an absolute break in our minds uh, from what was said in the previous chapter. This is all a continued thought. Okay? So with that in mind, let's look at the text. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It says... And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for particularly this passage we've just read. And now, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help me as I try to exposit this text. I pray that you would help us to uh, rightly divide the word of truth. And I pray, Lord, that this would be to the edification of your saints and most of all to the glory of your name. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul had just declared 
his joy and thankfulness over the faith of the Ephesians. But as he returns to this subject, he takes them back to the time before they came to faith in Christ. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here because this is certainly where we're going. Uh, but I do just want to mention in passing that this statement is good news. And, and you might be thinking, how in the world is a statement like that good news? Well, simply put, it's in the past tense. So, you were dead, which means you're not dead anymore. So that's good news. Um, more on that in a moment, though. What is Paul saying about the pre-regenerate Ephesians and the still unregenerate world? He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That is, we have this interesting paradox that he's presenting of dead men walking. Perhaps this might lead to some trying to argue that dead doesn't really mean dead because these people are still acting, they're walking, they're doing things. And obviously dead man, uh, dead men do not walk or act in any way at all. They're dead. But I believe the biblical witness is that dead actually means dead here. It's not just stark language to try to give us the idea of how sin sick we are. No, we're not just sick, we're dead. Think back to the beginning of human history. Adam was given a covenant of works that contained a righteous law that would have led to life if he had kept it but threatened death if he broke it. You know the story. The serpent deceived the woman who ate the fruit of the tree, and she gave it to Adam, who was standing right there while all this was happening. He was not deceived, but he willingly, maliciously, and treacherously ate of the fruit. God almost instantly doled out righteous curses upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon the man but he did not physically take the lives of Adam and Eve. Did God fail to follow through on his promise that in the very day that Adam ate of the tree, breaking God's covenant of life, that he would surely die? Absolutely not. Adam and all his posterity in him spiritually died that day. Our communion with God was broken. The image of God was distorted. And our access to the paradise of Eden was taken away. As our confession states it, by this sin our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. We fell in them. And through this, death came upon all. All became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body. In other words, Adam and Eve became sinners when they sinned and thus dead in sin. Lord willing, you're going to hear me make this point again in a couple of weeks. But let me ask this question now. When two cats breed, what do they produce? Yes. No, cats. They produce cats. But when two dogs breed? Dogs. When two sinners come together in this way, what do they produce? They produce sinners. 
As King David declared in the Psalms, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Or as Paul put it in his first epistle to the Corinthian church, By a man came death, and in Adam all die. So Paul is reminding the Ephesian church that this used to be their condition. The same is true for us now. We used to be like this, dead sinners who live our physical lives, walking in trespasses and sins. That means we cannot simply blame this on Adam. That'd be, that's the easy way out, right? He, we fell in Adam, so it's Adam's fault. But no, this says we walk in those sins. So, no, we, we can't do that. Prior to regeneration, we live our whole lives in rebellion against God. Even those things we do that are good, the world considers good. Even these things are sin because they're not done from a right motive, namely that we would glorify God by rightly imaging Him. We do it from some sort of selfish motive, some sort of pride, some sort of way to glorify ourselves. Paul says as much as he further explains that walking in trespasses and sins means walking down a particular path. Jesus tells us, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Likewise, Paul says here that when we walk in trespasses and sins, we are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, we, along with all of Adam's fallen descendants, are following the same trail that he blazed for us when he chose to rebel against God. We, like our spiritual father Adam before us, are choosing obedience to that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, instead of our creator and whose image and for whose glory we were made. Paul says the devil is even now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, as a good post-millennialist, I believe that Satan is now bound such that he is able no longer to deceive the nations in such a way as to prevent the spread of the gospel and the building of Christ's church. When Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of casting out demons by the power of Satan, he asked how a kingdom divided could stand and declared that if the Pharisees were right, Satan would be divided against himself. But then he said, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Just pause for a moment there. Notice the implication that the kingdom of God is present. It's not merely a future reality here on earth. It's present. Back to that whole already not yet thing that we keep having come up. But anyway, Jesus continues. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus was making the point that he had bound Satan and was plundering his goods. He was casting out demons and saving people from the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. At that time, that was before he was even crucified. So then, how could it be that Satan, who is presently bound, 
could be at work in the sons of disobedience. I think this is a simple solution. It seems like a problem. I don't really think it is. The fact that Satan is not able to stop the spread of the gospel does not mean he does not actively oppose it. He is still the prince of the power of the air, and he still commands those who are his willing subjects. See, even in this text right here, he's described as a prince. He has a kingdom, a kingdom of darkness. The sons of disobedience are those who are his unregenerate subjects. They bow the knee to Satan. Of course, he is still at work in them because in the ultimate sense, he is their God. Just as Ephesus as a whole was given over to paganism at this time, let's take a look around at our present situation in our culture. Despite our nation's profoundly Christian heritage, we are quickly becoming a paganized society. Or a society of nuns. N-O-N-E-S. N-U-N-S. <laughs> um, that is to say, the amount of people that are claiming no religious affiliation is growing quickly. According to one study that I found that was conducted by the Pew Research Center, about 63% of Americans identified themselves as Christian in 2021. As recently as 2007, that number was 78%. However, those who identify as born-again or evangelical Christians are only 24% of the population. And then when you consider that prosperity gospel and faith healer heretics are included in that group, the present situation looks pretty bleak, here at least. In that same survey... About 29%, almost a third of the population, claimed no religious affiliation at all. And that's just those who claim it. Those who are practically claiming no religious affiliation is probably much, much higher. We're seeing the fruit of such a phenomenon, are we not? Man is still seeking what Adam sought at the time of his rebellion. Man wants to put himself in the place of God. Is this not manifestly clear by what we're witnessing today? Man thinks he can redefine the created order. Mothers who are supposed to be life nurturers instead kill their preborn babies and then shout their abortions on social media. Men and women whore themselves in the name of sexual freedom. Sexual freedom. Freedom from what exactly? I suggest it is freedom from the design and law of God for human sexuality. Freedom from God is what that is. Which brings us to the redefinition of marriage to include non-corresponding sexual relationships, read in there, homosexual relationships, as legitimate marriages. I phrase it that way because when God made Eve for Adam, that's the reason he made her for Adam. When God made Eve for Adam, the ESV describes her as a helper fit for him. The Hebrew word being translated there is neged, which literally means opposite correspondence. 
So marriage is the joining together of two opposite correspondences. That's why we can say, we can honestly say that biblically speaking, gay marriage is an oxymoron. It can't happen. Or to put it in the words of Jesus, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, corresponding opposites, and hold fast to his wife, a new set of corresponding opposites, and the two shall become one flesh, which they can do because they're corresponding opposites. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus' words. But the rebellion of this wicked generation goes further than even the redefinition of marriage. We live in a time where mankind believes it has the power to determine its own ontological identity. That is, we can choose to be a man, or we can choose to be a woman, or something else entirely. And this is supposed to be acceptable and indeed it's supposed to be celebrated. But as I heard the former Presbyterian minister, Mr. Rogers, sing in an old clip recently, boys are boys from the beginning, girls are girls right from the start. Again, God made them and he made them male and female. God says gender is binary and he assigns it from the moment of conception, just like he gives life at the moment of conception. And we could go on and on about the ways in which our nation has rebelled against God, but I don't, I don't want to hold you here too long, so I'm going to move on. And lest we start condescendingly trying to look at our unregenerate neighbors as if somehow we're better than them, Paul reminds the Ephesians and us that it was among such people we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. See, we're no better. We, we can see that that stuff's evil, but the reason we see that stuff's evil is because of the Holy Spirit living in us, revealing those things to us. We're no better than them. We used to be just as wretched and sinful as those pursuing the things we just discussed. In fact, maybe we pursued some of the very things we just discussed, not just similar things. We used to acknowledge Satan as God, though perhaps unwittingly so. Maybe you weren't sitting down there like a Satanist, you know, but like an obvious form like that. But to worship idols is to worship demons and ultimately the prince of demons. We used to pursue only our own self-gratification. We used to be ruled by our passions, which dictated our sinful actions. We used to act in such a way as to satisfy the de sinful desires of our bodies and minds. In fact, we still struggle with sin even after we're born again, do we not? We experience that war within between the old man and the new. But in our unregenerate state, we used to be, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This explains why we would do all these horrible things that we do. As Jason has rightly said here so often, mankind has a true will by which 
We make real choices, but in an unregenerate state, our chooser is broken. And so we always choose sin. Adam became a sinner because he sinned. But his fallen posterity sinned because we're sinners by nature. Scripture says, To set the mind on the flesh is death, and the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot. That is, they don't have the ability to please God. How could they? By nature, it's hostile to Him. At the deepest level of the unregenerate man's being, he is hostile toward God. He hates God. And since unregenerate man is at enmity with and rebellion against God, God's righteous wrath abides on him. Now. Not just in the future when we get to the judgment. Now. It abides on him. This is not only bad news, but it is the worst possible news. To have the wrath of God abiding on you. And apart from God's intervention, this would be the estate of all mankind, including us. But, then we read some of the most precious words in all of sacred scripture. But God. It was not pleasing to God that he should leave all mankind in this fallen condition and then damn us all to hell. He would have been perfectly justified in doing so, but it was not pleasing to him. So God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Here Paul explicitly states what was implied in the previous chapter, namely that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that raises us dead sinners from spiritual death unto spiritual life and will one day raise us from physical death as well assuming that the Lord carries his coming beyond our lifetimes consider the mercy and love of God that he would freely choose to have this disposition toward us even when we were dead in trespasses um I'm paraphrasing this, but as, as it's put in another place in Scripture, um, we would not want to die for an unrighteous man. We might die for a good man, but we're certainly not going to die for an unrighteous man. But God shows his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. This raises at least two questions. One, how could God show mercy and set his love on his rebellious creatures without violating his holiness and righteousness. And then number two, why would he set his love on rebellious creatures, even if we can give an answer, a sufficient answer, to the first question? Well, the answer to both, in short, is Jesus. Remember from chapter one that the God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Which answers the first question. God can show mercy and set his love on us because he sees us as being in Christ. When he looks at us, he sees Christ. That's how he could set his love on us. From the foundation of the world, it was God's plan. 
that for our sake he would make him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as to why he would sovereignly choose to set his love on sinful men, he does so in order that Christ might be the firstborn or the preeminent among many brothers. So the answer to both questions is Jesus. He saves us for Christ's sake. It was God's sovereign choice that he would love us and set his mercy upon us. As Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to the Romans, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That is why after declaring the mercy and love of God toward us and raising us from spiritual death, making us alive with Christ, Paul says, by grace you have been saved. There is nothing within us, nothing we have done or could do that merits this great blessing from God. God does not look down the corridors of time and see who is going to make a decision for Christ, and then on the basis of that future decision, elect us for salvation. Nor does he look down the corridors of time and see some righteous work that we do, or works, plural, and thereby save us uh, on the basis of that. No, there is literally nothing we can do to merit salvation in ourselves. How could we merit salvation? We were dead it is by God's grace alone we are saved and made alive together with Christ. How ridiculous does it seem? Just to picture this for a moment. You're at a funeral and you walk to the front and you speak to the dead and tell them to rise. They're not going to. They're dead. But if Jesus walks to the front and speaks to the dead and says rise, the dead gets up. And if this, were, uh, if this is where the blessing stopped, this would be more than we deserve, and it would be enough that we would spend eternity praising the glorious grace of God. But there's more. There's much, much more. Again, recall Paul's sidebar at the end of chapter 1 where he talks about God raising Jesus from the dead and then seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now Paul declares that after our own resurrection from the dead, he raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, he seats us with Christ to reign with him. This is not to say that we reign equally with Christ. Again, his purpose is that in everything Christ might be preeminent. What this means is that we are restored to our original position of authority over creation as God's vice regents. As R.C. Sproul explains it, quote, We may not often think of ourselves as kings and queens who will rule over creation, but this consequence of our redemption flows directly from who the Lord made us to be and what salvation accomplishes in repairing his broken images. God made us to have dominion over creation, to rule it for his glory. We forfeited our ability to fulfill his vocation in Adam, 
Christ has succeeded in reigning over creation as the last Adam. In Him, we are now able once more to achieve our original purpose as righteous rulers of the world. End quote. Simply put, God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted Him to the seat of authority over all creation. And God, by this same power, raises us from the dead in Christ, adopts us as sons and daughters in Christ, and exalts us with Christ that we may reign with Him. He does this so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. We just sang about that. Thank you, Jesus. Read the second verse, and that's all. Thank you. Jesus. He takes us from spiritual death and slavery to sin and raises us to life in Christ and makes us rulers over creation with Christ. Spiritually dead and enslaved, now spiritually alive and reigning. Or, as was said in chapter 1, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the same place it says here, in the heavenly places. And this is done to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. For by grace you have been saved. Now this is a repetition from verse 6. You know Paul is trying to emphasize this point because he repeats it. We are saved by God's grace alone. And if the repetition was not enough to drive the point home, he continues by explaining, you have been saved through faith. How does faith save us? It joins us to Christ. This is a place where we need to be very careful because it is not faith itself which serves as our righteousness before God. As our confession so clearly states, quote, God does not impute faith itself, the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to us as our righteousness. Instead, he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as our whole and only righteousness by faith. That is, faith in Christ is the means by which this double imputation is effected. Faith is the means by which our uh, filthy sin is imputed to Christ. And faith is the means by which we receive His perfect holy righteousness. And this faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God. This necessarily must be the case. How could someone who is dead and trespasses in sin, and by nature a child of wrath, make a decision for Christ? We've read in another place in Scripture that uh, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot obey the law of God. It cannot please God. It does not have the ability to do so. So how could such a person make a decision for Christ? They can't. And wouldn't such a decision apart from the miraculous working of God mean that such a person would have done something about which to boast? Imagine that. The reason I'm saved and my neighbor is not is because I made a better decision than him. I made a decision for Christ. 
I'm better than him. That's what that means. I'm smarter than him. I'm going to heaven because I'm smarter than my neighbor. Is that what this text says? No. No, absolutely not. It says, this salvation that is through faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is God's gift to his elect people. It is manifestly not your own doing and not a result of fallen man's works. It is not God and us working together where God does his 99.9% and then we have to add our 0.1% with our faith or whatever other meritorious works you want to insert in there. No, it is 100% the work of God and 100% a gift from God to his beloved elect people. This is so that no one may boast in himself. Rather, all the glory for the salvation of man goes to God alone because God alone saves man. God does not simply save us and impart all these spiritual blessings upon us for no reason, though. Again, there is a purpose behind all this. Scripture says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The image of God was distorted when Adam sinned. That which was meant to image the giver of life and serve as his vice regents became slaves to sin and death. But for those who receive the free gift of salvation in Christ, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We are those who have put off the old man with, it, uh, with his practices and have put on the new man which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, God is creating a new humanity in Christ. A humanity that is righteous. This text says, For we are his, that is God the Father's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Whereas when we were still in Adam, we were spiritually dead, walking in trespasses and sin, following the prince of the power of the air, as did our spiritual father Adam. Now in Christ Jesus, we are made alive to walk in good works, prepared beforehand by God the Father. Whereas in Adam we were by nature children of wrath, in Christ we are adopted children of God and co-heirs with Christ. Whereas the image of God in us was broken and distorted in Adam, the image is renewed and restored in Christ. Whereas in Adam God's law is a covenant of works for life and therefore a curse, in Christ we are free to obey God as his blood-bought blood sons and daughters. We don't obey to obtain life. We obey because we are alive. We can join with the psalmist in declaring, I find delight in your commandments, which I love. 
as we close, <clears throat> I want to encourage us all who have received the free gift of salvation that we would walk in this freedom and newness of life that has been secured for us in Christ. May we live as obedient sons and daughters, free to be obedient as sons and daughters, performing the good works for which we were created or recreated in Christ Jesus unto the glory of our Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the free gift of salvation. Thank you that uh, you did set your love on us even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. You sent Christ to live the righteous life that we've failed to live and even now continue to fail to live and um, to give us that righteousness and then also for him to die the death that we deserve to die uh, and then by that taking away our sin. And we're thankful that you give to us uh, adoption as your sons and daughters. And we're thankful that the image uh, that we were made to bear is renewed and is being renewed in Christ. Lord, help us to live obedient lives that glorify your name, not because we're under some sort of compulsion, but rather because it is our delight to do so. We pray all this in the name of Christ.